There's times in your life that you can, you can preach a big game and you can say, let's go, let's go, we got this, but sometimes you're so scared you throw up. Is there anybody in here that at some time in your life you were so scared that you vomited? Anybody? Chris Booker, what, what was it that got you that scared? First trip to Utah. Okay, so he was going on a mission trip. All right, I got that. I can relate to that. Anybody else? You're so scared that I'm going to call on you that you're about to vomit. Anybody? <laughs> Anybody that's ever happened to? In a room this size, there's bound to be a few. I've, I've done conferences all over the world and spoken at churches and youth groups, and I've asked this question to a whole lot of people, and, and the number one answer I get is public speaking. Um, people... People are so afraid of public speaking that a lot of times somebody will go and they'll throw up before they get on stage. And in fact, the statistics bear out that public speaking is the number one fear of Americans and the number two fear is death. So people are more afraid of public speaking than they are dying. The, the second answer I get is usually a championship football game or some sort of sports event. It's, it's people who were in some kind of athletic situation that was highly competitive and they got so scared that they threw up. I've heard, I've heard all kinds of stories. I've heard, I've heard awful stories and funny stories. Awful stories, somebody, somebody whose father beat them. And so oftentimes when he would, he, she would hear his car pulling into the driveway, she would go vomit. She was so afraid of him even coming home. And then there's stories that are a little amusing, like one person was so scared of heights that she was on a ropes course and she vomited on the people on the ropes below her. Um, <laughs> And you can have a real visceral reaction to fear. And the reason I, I, I talk about it is because, and I've mentioned this to you guys before, we're, we're talking about the scary word evangelism recently and what that word even means. And it means bearer of good news. And, but it's, it's, it's such a, a word that's it's connected with politics now, with evangelicals, and it's a word that has just become ugly in the minds of Christians. And part of the idea of outreach, you know, one of our missions is missions and outreach. One of our pillars, missions and outreach. And the idea behind outreach is being a witness for Jesus, talking about what you've seen, what you've experienced. But it can be so scary that a lot of people don't do it. And I just want to let you guys know that there was a time in my life that for two consecutive days, I hugged a toilet and threw up because I was so scared of going out and talking to people about Jesus. It started right here at Hoover Dam. I had, I had flown to Phoenix, Arizona with a pastor friend, and we were going to a conference there, but we, had, we came in two days earlier so that we could drive up to Vegas. And we were driving between Phoenix and Vegas, so we stopped off at Hoover Dam. It's kind of just a natural part of the drive. And Hoover Dam, you can't tell by the picture, but this thing's about 40 times bigger than, than this looks. I mean, you, you, the, you, know, you can see the cars up on the edge and kind of get an idea. But there, there's, there's these overlooks where you can look out over the dam and you just kind of lose depth perception. It's so huge, you can't kind of relate to what you're looking at. And I remember looking over the edge and looking down and feeling very small when my buddy Mark said, I can't wait, to, he, he just said this sentence and it's forever etched in my brain. He said, I can't wait to get out on the streets of Vegas and start witnessing to people tonight. And I remember my first thought, and this is literal, this isn't just for a funny story, my first thought was I should jump. That, that, actu like that phrase actually went through my head. Uh, I was a relatively new, passionate follower of Jesus at this point, and I knew talking to people about Jesus and kind of sharing your faith with, kind of came with the program, but the concept terrified me. And so, and then I thought, well, I should hitchhike home. That was my second thought. Uh, back to Kentucky. 
And we drove to Vegas, and if you've ever been to Vegas, Vegas is, you know, a million lights, and they call it Sin City. And you get there, and it's just an intimidating place. There's, there's bouncers on every corner. There's, there's, people, there's, there's, there's vans that drive around with almost naked girls on it, you know, with phone numbers that you can call to have a girl come visit your hotel room. There's, there's guys that pass out um, little business cards that are basically pornography, how, where you can get a hooker, where you can go to a strip club. Uh, it, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a wild place, Vegas. And we were staying at Circus Circus. And we went through the day, we ate the buffets, we, you know, we saw the casinos, we went and saw Shamu at, at, at the, what's, what's the place called? Uh, SeaWorld. And, you know, we did all the stuff. We saw the Pirates of the Caribbean fight each other on the boats. And, and, but then at night, that night comes, and we're in the hotel room, and Mark says, I'm going to go start witnessing. And I said, I'm going to go throw up. And it's, it's a true story. I went in, and I remember the white tile floor. I, I developed this really powerful migraine headache. And I went in while he went out, and I hugged the toilet and threw up for, for hours. I, that's, that's how scared I I don't know how much it was neurological and tied to my fear and how much it was a real migraine. But all I know is I did not want to be out there with him, and I ended up throwing up. The next day, we get up, and we, we go out and do all the other stuff, the buffets and the magic shows and ride go-karts or whatever. And, and that evening, he says, I'm going to go start witnessing. And I said, I'm going to go throw up. And for the second night in a row, I developed this migraine. I go in, I shut off the lights, I hug this toilet, there's this white tile floor, and, and I throw up. And the second day, I'm laying there next to this toilet, and I'm thinking, why are you such a coward? Like, what is wrong with you? That's what I'm telling myself. You're not a coward. What's wrong with you? So I decided, I'm going to buck up and be brave. And so I go out. And I take a video camera, and I decide that I'm going to film Mark from very far away. And so I, I, I still have video, and I looked for it this week. I couldn't find it. I burned a DVD just a couple years ago of this event. But I'm hiding behind a car, zoomed way out, watching him witnessing, whatever that meant. And what he would do is he would go out, and he would stand next to the guys passing out pornography, and he would pass out Christian literature. He would pass out what they call gospel tracts. And he, he, he would stand shoulder to shoulder with these guys, and he was quite vocal. He would, he would stand up with his gospel tracts. He'd say, you don't need what they're passing out. You need this. This is about Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I mean, he's just... And, and they're, do, do you think they were very happy that he was there? Not so much. And I even thought, this guy is over the top. Man, this is, this is wild stuff. And I could see from my perspective that they were visibly irritated. And a lot of people were taken, you know. But the, the guys passing out their stuff, they'll pass it to 12-year-old people. I mean, they, they, they don't even care. They just pass it in every hand. And you could see them becoming, like, physically aggressive towards him to the point where they were kind of elbowing him, bumping him. And I, I couldn't hear their conversation because I'm so afraid and so far away. But that was what brought out, like, the... the the courage in me. It wasn't that I was gung-ho for Jesus. It wasn't that I wanted to talk to people about Jesus. It's that my friend Mark was about to get beat up. And I viewed myself as a ninja at that point in life. <laughs> and I can, I can prove, actually, that I was, because this is me. Some of you have seen this picture before, but you can see the eyes, right? And you can know this is a person who knows how to handle himself. I mean, this is a guy who can fight. And I, I can't believe, I, I don't even know that my wife has seen this picture that I'm about to show you, but this is a picture that I drew of myself towards the end of high school. 
Now, I apparently wasn't too excited about the foot, so I just kind of marked it out. But I was Napoleon Dynamite. I mean, here, here's another drawing I did in high school. I was, I was the Napoleon Dynamite nerd, but I also thought that I was a ninja master. And so, I, you know, out in front of Circus Circus, when he's getting starting to get pushed around by these guys, I'm thinking I need to be there for him. If he gets knocked out, I'll drag his body away. I'm, I'm thinking I'll take care of him, right? So I start inching closer just so that I'll be there. And I start hearing their conversation. And they're saying stuff like, why don't you know, just leave us alone? Why, why, why won't you just stop? And, and he's saying, because this is important. And he's just continuing to pass it out, you know. And, and they'll, say, they'll say, couldn't you do this elsewhere? Why, why can't you just leave us? And at some point, something kicked in me that I knew how to answer their question. And so I, I kind of came up behind him. I said, guys, can't you see the reason he's doing this? I mean, some, something changed in me at that moment, and I heard them talking to him. And I said, he's doing this because he cares about you. And, and the next thing I know is I'm standing next to Mark, passing out tracks, thinking, oh, man, I'm, what is wrong with me? Like, I'm one of them now. And they, now, now, of course, there's two of us now, so they're doubly not happy. And they start, you know, Mark would say, we're doing this because we care about you and we care about these people and we really do believe in Jesus and we really think Jesus is important. And then they st- the tones of their questions started changing. It was be like, oh yeah, well, if Jesus is so great, then why can't I pay my bills and why is my daughter as sick as she is? You know, if God's so good, why, why doesn't he do something about that? And I had studied enough apologetics to where I was able to kind of chime in on those conversations and say, well, have you considered this, this, and this? And then they'd say something else. You know, oh, yeah, sure, sure, yeah, you guys are just science haters. And I had studied enough apologetics where I could say, well, have you considered this view and this view? And the interesting thing that happened is while we're passing out tracts, the pornography distributors, they stopped distributing their pornography. And, and this isn't about pornography, so don't, don't think that. But the, the, the point is they, they kind of formed a semicircle around us, and more of them started coming. And they started peppering us with questions, and we started responding with some answers. And the nature of the dialogue just changed. Suddenly it was very clear that these guys were really hungry. And they were asking questions that they were really interested in the answers. It was no longer leave us alone. They even said things like, it's illegal to pass stuff out on the strip. Leave us alone. And we're like, what? (laughs) But they started asking sincere questions, and we started giving them sincere answers. And it almost turned into like a street preaching situation as people came and went and listened to the conversation. And I remember towards the end of the evening, we got out there at about 11 o'clock at night, and we left at about 3 in the morning. So this conversation went on a very long time. And when we started packing up our box of tracks to leave, I remember the one guy who had been the most verbally abrasive. He, he, was, he had a long trench coat on. He had a pencil-thin mustache and a big dangly earring. And he was the guy that at the beginning was the most angry we were there. And I remember him as we were packing up with tears in his eyes saying, are you guys going to come back tomorrow? And I'm thinking, what is this world that I'm living in? This is just freaking me out. This other guy says, hey, can you give me a ride? We're like, well, we're not, we're not going anywhere, but yeah, we'll, we'll give you a ride. He said, I just need to get home. Will you give me a ride? And we said, yeah. So we, we, put, we, we got in a convertible uh, Sebring that we had rented, put the top down, and drove down the strip of Vegas. And Vegas is wild. You see all kinds of crazy things there, like Elvis Pesley. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
we're driving down the strip, and I'm in the, in the passenger seat, Mark's in the driver's seat, and this guy leans, he's sitting in the, car, in the seat behind us, and this guy leans forward, and he's holding one of these little green Gideon's Bibles that everybody has seen. And he holds it out in front of us, and it's obvious this thing is well used. And he flips through it, and if I remember right, it's highlighted and marked and written in. And I mean, it, somebody has used this Bible. And he says, guys, he says, I carry this with me everywhere I go. He says, I was raised Christian. He says, I, he says for, for years I've been running away from God. And I remember we pulled over on the Vegas Strip and got out, and we prayed with this guy. And he, he prayed what we talked about a couple weeks ago, the sinner's prayer, this, this kind of prayer where you commit and, and give your life to God or give your life back to God, which, which again, I don't think is the end game. I think that's the beginning. And I, I, I view things differently now as far as where I wish I had gone with this guy. Um, we got in the yellow pages. Some of you are still familiar with the yellow pages. We got in the yellow pages and found a couple names of churches. And we said, Here's, this looks like a good church. This looks like a good church. Will you be in one of these churches Sunday? He said, yes, yes, I will. And we parted ways. And it absolutely forever revolutionized my life. I, up until that point, I just thought that Christians who did that kind of stuff were freaky, weird people and that nobody wanted to hear from them. But I found out that night that that's just not true. Um, since that time, I have talked to people about Jesus on buses and street corners and shopping malls and airplanes and trains and uh, from Cambodia to Boston. I, I've talked to people about Jesus and I found out that there's a lot of really hungry people out there uh, about spiritual dialogue. And so I want to talk to you just briefly about some of the things that I think hold us up and keep us from sharing our faith. And, and the number one thing is there's this fear that you can't give away what you don't have. And so you might sit here and think, well, that's great for H. He's a pastor. I wasn't a pastor back then. You might think that's great for them, but I'm not really a super ultra committed Christian at this point. I still have a lot of junk in my life. I saw a t-shirt recently that said, I'm a Christian, but I cuss a little. And you might, that might be you. You think, I'm not, I don't add up, and so how could I be a representative of Jesus? And again, not about cussing, but you get the point. You might think, I, I'm not qualified. And so I want to add to this sentence that you might, you can't give away what you don't have, and that's true, but you don't need a whole lot to give this thing away. There's, there's a story in the Gospel of John where Jesus confronts, doesn't confront, he's actually sitting down next to a well. He's exhausted, he's sweaty, he's had a long day. And this Samaritan woman comes up, who's basically a pagan. That's what they would have described a Samaritan woman as. And he says, hey, he, says, he, says, he doesn't say it like this. He says, yo, fetch me some water, man. No, he's, he's, like, he's like, I'm thirsty, will you get me something to drink? And she's shocked that he would even address her. One, because she's Samaritan, and two, because she's a woman. And in this culture, a Jewish rabbi doesn't talk to either of those people. But he says, hey, would you get me a drink of water? And that catches her off guard. And they have this really interesting conversation. You should read it. It's in, it's in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. I'm going to paraphrase and sum up some of it for you here. But at one point, she starts talking about the Messiah that the Jews are expecting. And he, he kind of tips his, shows his hand and says, that's me. Um, he says, I'm, he, he, he says th this phrase. He says, um, people who drink the water from this well will thirst, but those who drink from the water I supply will never thirst again. And it intrigues her. And then he kind of confronts her about something going on in her life and just makes it clear that he knows some stuff. And she's shocked by that. And so it says, it says in these passages, it says she goes out into the village and she starts knocking on all the doors and telling everybody, come meet the man who told me everything I ever did. And then a few short verses later, it says many 
in that village came to follow Jesus because of what this woman said. So you see, this is a woman who didn't have much. She's still sleeping with the sixth man that she's been sleeping with recently. She's still you know, a, a pagan far from God in a, in a sense. But what has happened is she's had this encounter with Jesus where something changed in her. Something was transformed and challenged, and she went out to tell people about it. So she doesn't have all her ducks in a row. She is not the ultimate feel-good Christian at this point, but she has enough. She's had an encounter with Jesus. And so you might think that you're, you're not qualified. I'm telling you, uh, th- th- there's, there's a passage where Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's very small. He says, a man, when he planted it, it grew and it became a tree and the birds perched in its branches. You may be going on a spiritual journey and you may not have arrived anywhere near the destination you would like to arrive at. That doesn't mean you can't take people with you. It doesn't mean you can't invite people along in the same journey you're going on. You don't have to be perfect. If that's the case, none of us can ever be an example of Jesus. And so it starts just recognizing that wherever I'm at, I have something to offer to people. And then there's just just this fear that people don't want to hear. And the reality is, statistically, factually, that that doesn't bear out. You know, most Christians consider the words that Jesus speaks as pretty important, We think when Jesus talks, I'm going to lean in and listen. We talk about the red letter print in the Bible. When Jesus says something, you know, if he was God, he probably has kind of a clue as to what he's talking about. And at one point, he's talking talking to the disciples, and he's saying, go out in pairs to all the villages and tell them about the kingdom of God and heal people and do miracles and show people that God is real. And this is what he says. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So we, we want to make it out like the people... So, so when he's talking... He, again, agricultural situation, agricultural culture. He talks in farming analogies all the time. He's saying that there are people out there who are ripe and ready. But what's missing is guys like you who will go out into the villages and talk to people. So Jesus prophesied that people are ready, ripe, and want to hear. But we, in our belief that nobody wants to hear it, nobody wants to talk about spiritual things, nobody wants to be annoyed, we actually, in a sense, defy the prophetic words of Jesus. And it doesn't bear, and it it actually bears out that Jesus is right. I've been reading this book recently. My wife teases me because she says I read the most boring books in the world, and I'm reading this book about the unchurched and how they feel about religion and how they feel about church. And Tom Rainer, and I really, it, it amuses me that he, it's called the Rainer Scale. It would be like me writing a book and calling it the Hussman Scale. I'm like, well, hello, Mr. Fancy Pants. But he calls it the Rainer Scale. And he talks about unchurched people, and he puts them in categories. And some of that I'm even uncomfortable with. But it's, he categorizes people between U1 and U5. Whereas, so they're all unchurched people. They're people who don't attend church. And the U1s are people who are ripe and ready. If a Christian would just come to them and say, hey, would you like to be a follower of Jesus? They're like, yes, I would like to be. And there's a large percentage of Americans that that turns out to be the reality. The U5s are people who want nothing to do with church, who want nothing to do with Christians, and who are absolutely antagonistic to Christianity. Now, the issue I have with the Rainer scale is a lot of times Christians would categorize people like this and they'll assume the U1s are much closer to God than the U5s. I have a real issue with that. I don't think that bears out. I don't think that's true. I think U5 people can be just as close to connecting with God as U1s. In fact, sometimes being a U1 is exactly what will hold you back from God for a very long time. 
So I, I want to I mention that, that I want to be careful about this scale. But I do want to point out the percentages. If you go out today and you strike up a conversation with a stranger or you're passing out gospel literature or you're street preaching, only about 5% of Americans are going to be antagonistic to your message at this point. We have this idea that that number's got to be 60%. That if I go knocking on doors today or if I go talk to a person on a bus, there's got to be about 60% of the people that just want to be left alone. The statistics don't bear that out. The statistics are that there are a lot of people who are really, they're at least ambivalent. So you've got... You've got 38% of Americans that would either be receptive or highly receptive to your message. Over one in three people that you could go talk to today that are just waiting for you to do so. They're just looking for someone. They want to be invited to church because they're scared of church, but they would come if you would go ask them and you would walk in the building with them. It's over one-third. And then the other percentages are open to discussion or, or not receptive but not antagonistic. They're just ambivalent. Only 5% will be upset with you. I was in London, England one time, and we were out doing what they call street evangelism. We were approaching people, and we were using a survey to start up conversations. And it's only one of two times in my life that I can think of, and three if you include the guys on, on the Vegas Strip, only one or three. I've talked to hundreds, if not thousands of people, just strangers in my life about Jesus. And I can only think of these one to three stories where somebody was really ticked off. But in this case, this guy was really ticked off. And actually, I can think of four stories because there was one time somebody really got on my wife, and so that was, that was the fourth story. So four out of hundreds or thousands. But this guy, we started the survey, and I started asking him the questions, and it became really quick, you know, what was going on in the survey. And he starts saying, you blankety-blank Christians are stupid, idiotic, blankety-blank, and I mean, you fill in the most vulgar of vulgarities you can think of. And, he's, and he's, 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 he's a little bit inebriated, and he's this close to my face, and he keeps getting closer and closer, and just saying, yeah, and he, I mean, he is yelling to the point where it gets really uncomfortable. There's lots and lots of people around, and everybody's like, whoa, what is going on here? And I remember him spitting on me as he talked. I remember his saliva slapping me in the face. And just, I mean, cussing, and Jesus was a blankety-blank, blankety-blank. And, and my first impulse, because there's a couple options in a situation like that, which is very, very uncommon. One is to stand your ground, talk it out, see if you can help. Or two would be to politely dismiss yourself from the conversation. I believe scripturally, the second option is the most common. Jesus, Jesus says things like, like this. He says, if... If, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Uh, he's basically saying it's okay to walk away in a situation like that. You're probably not going to help in this situation. But there's other times where I just think we, we can't put God in a box in situations like this. And for whatever reason, my gut said, stick it out. My gut at that moment said, don't back down. Don't be scared. And so I just politely listened to what he had to say and said, you know, and then I would say, well, have you, have you considered this view? And he would I mean, he's just freaking out. And I, I'm getting nowhere with this guy. But here's what happens. While I'm talking to him, my friend Jason Purcell approaches this guy's buddy who's sitting on the ground nearby and has a long conversation with him while his friend is screaming at me. And that guy in tears prays some sort of commitment prayer with, with my buddy Jason, saying he, he's an addict, Jason is a former addict, they connect, and something really amazing happens. To the point where Jason just, 
He sobs through the rest of the night. We're on the subway going home, and he's still sobbing, saying, that was me, man. I was that guy, man. That, I, w- I could have been him if it hadn't been for this, this, and this. And he has this amazing ministry experience while, basically, I'm running as a distraction. I don't suspect that Jason would have had that conversation with his friend had we not been having the conversation we had. He would have turned on Jason and stopped that as quick as possible. But I'm telling you, so here you've got two people at random that you approach. You've got one person who is belligerent and angry. They make up 5% of the American population. Then you've got the, the higher percentage person that's out there on the streets right now in your community, at your job place, and they're hungry and they're looking for something. And those are the people that we're looking to help. 2 Corinthians 2 says, We are the aroma of Christ, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. For we are not like so many people, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. It doesn't mean be a jerk. It doesn't mean be an idiot. Go out and just be antagonistic to non-Christians, talking about what stupid heathens they are and how they're all going to hell. It's not what I'm talking about. I had a friend post this on Facebook this week. It's long but you can read along with me. She said, Today in Target, an 80-something-year-old man said to me, Here's a gift. Jesus loves you. That's great. While handing me a fake coin. At first, I appreciated the sentiment and just replied enthusiastically, I know. Then it dawned on me that he tracked me down while I was perusing the women's intimates aisles. Awkward. Also, I felt conned because the coin tracked focused on how I was going straight to hell if I didn't repent of my sins, and the good news part of the story was strangely absent. I think Jesus offers us more than just a get-out-of-hell-free card. I wish we talked more about that part. Moral of the story, don't, tra- don't track down women to evangelize while they're looking at bras. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's some Christians that just become belligerent idiots because they think I've got a hold of the truth and so I can just go do what I want and I can treat people how I want and I can bang on anybody's door at any time and I don't have to care about anything because the God of the universe supports my efforts. That's not what I'm talking about at all. In, in the passage in 2 Corinthians, it says, people of sincerity. It's people who are, who are careful. You know, the golden rule is a great idea. Um, treat people the way you want to be treated. I got so many stories, I can't tell you all of them today. I want to jump ahead. There's this passage in Matthew 13 where it's called the parable of the sower. And in the parable of the sower, Jesus is talking about a farmer. Again, agricultural reference, agricultural society. He's talking about a farmer who goes out and he throws a bunch of seed out. And he's, he, he, he kind of looks like a dumb farmer. He, he doesn't make much. He's not very strategic. He throws it on the road. He throws it on the roadside. He throws it on the rocks. He throws it on the fields. He throws it in the soil. He throws it everywhere. And it says that some of it sprang up immediately because it was on shallow soil. And it says, it says the, the birds came and ate it. Or some of it, the birds on the road, the birds just came and ate. And some of it on the roadside, it grew up a little bit, but then it was ripped out. And, and, and the stuff in the rocks just got choked out. And some of it choked out by weeds. And, but he says there's some of it that got in good soil, and it grew up to a harvest of 30, 60, 100-fold. It's, it's, it's good, good soil, good harvest. And later on, his disciples come to him, and they're like, Jesus, what... What, is this, what do you even mean when you talk about this? And Jesus says this about that parable. He says, if you don't understand this story, how can you understand anything I have to teach? This must be a pretty important little story Jesus is telling. And then he goes on to talk about how we are the farmers and the seed is the word of God, the message of God in his kingdom. And it says some places it's going to plant and some places it's not. Some places it's going to take hold and start and then die off. 
There's going to be other places where it starts, it takes off, and then other cares and other worries come in and rip it out. But in some places, it's going to grow up into a great harvest. And to me, this whole idea of evangelism, the scary word, is not about convincing people. It's not about indoctrinating people. It's not about twisting people's arms or grabbing them by the face and saying, you must believe. It's about communicating this message of an incredible God that sent an incredible son to transform and save the world and getting that message out and letting people hear it and then letting the cards fall where they fall, letting the chips fall where they lie or whatever that strange phrase is. It's the idea of just being communicators, being witnesses, and then letting God sort it out. It's not our job to convert. It's not our job to create the stories. It's our job to represent Jesus well, to do it often, to do it in public, to do it with our friends and family and coworkers reasonably, in sincerity, with wisdom, and then let God change lives. Let God transform people.